the delight that characterizes the sentiments of our heart this morning continue to redound to our goodness and most especially that, of course, of our desire to magnify God's name today. This is, of course, the first day of the week, and we're honored to be able to come together in His name to offer worship to Him. And I would invite you for the next few moments this morning to consider a message, a lesson, that is taken from that text that Brother Matt read just a moment ago, taken from the 16th chapter of 1 Chronicles. This past week, as we have been reading in that book of 1 Chronicles, we have now arrived at a particular section of the Old Testament that in many ways is a challenging thing. The first nine, ten chapters or so of 1 Chronicles is a long list of genealogies, and as you and I read that, we appreciate the lengthy consideration of God's inspiration to that provision. One name after another over all those chapters. But then the circumstances change so quickly. As we notice that the ark, David brought it to Jerusalem. As he did so, there's a tremendous aspect of worship, a consideration of the right mentality and the right attitude. And as much as that characterizes 1 Chronicles 16 and following, I would invite you to think with me this morning about worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That 29th verse of 1 Chronicles 16 again reads like this, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Even David recognized the importance of worship. Last Lord's Day morning, as you and I studied Acts chapter 20, we noticed a lesson that pinpointed the activities of the church, and among those activities were our periods of assembly, much as what you and I are involved in at the moment. And so today, I would invite you to consider a sequel to that subject. What about worship in particular? The features, the aspects, the mental attitude, and the disposition of heart that should be characteristic of it. Let's study that for the next few moments today. It seems as though there are many in the religious world greatly confused about the subject of worship. What's its objective? What's its aim? What should the byproducts of it be? And yet the Word of God seems so direct and straightforward. It is with that in mind, some of those statements at the bottom of that slide seem so appropriate. I believe almost any religious person would somehow agree that worship is one important matter of the church, but there the consensus stops. What kind of worship should it be? How should it be offered? When should it be offered? Let us turn our attention then to the following. First, what about worship by its definition? Let's know the terms of which we speak. You'll notice as we come to realize it is certainly no gigantic leap to appreciate the fact that worship is a frequent biblical topic, both Old and New Testament. The word worship does occur very, very often. So much so, I would ask you to notice two particular words. In the Old Testament, that word that's most often translated worship is the Old Testament Hebrew word shekah. And as you can see, the word literally means to prostrate before, that is, as one falls prostrate before another, or to appreciate, to make obeisance to, to do reverence to. And that word so often is descriptive of that response of the human family to God in the days of the Old Testament. To do reverence to. To have that desire to do obeisance to. 
But as we make the transition into the New Testament, we find that Greek word, proskuneo, again, frequently translated to worship, and it literally means to kiss the hand toward, to do reverence to. Immediately, we come face to face with the thought then in its imagery. Kissing the hand toward another, immediately recognizing one superior to me and one who is worthy of my greatest reverence. Interestingly enough, as you come to the very first occurrence of the word worship in the New Testament, it's found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And in the American Standard Version's footnotes to that particular reference and that word, I thought it very important to note the following. Here are those lexicographers' ideas about worship. Their knowledge of the Greek text, their knowledge of how that word is used. The Greek word denotes an act of reverence, whether paid to a creature or to the Creator. And you and I can well appreciate that it is utilized basically from that time forward as an observation of to the Creator. And thus it means acts of reverence directed to God. There's a definition for worship that you and I can remember and one that we can utilize to assist us. Acts, A-C-T-S, of reverence directed to God. At this point, we've already learned a great deal then about worship. That does distinguish it so much from that which is frequently the case. I would ask you to notice some of these observations then. If that is the definition of worship, then that directly suggests this. You notice the very first element in that definition was acts, A-C-T-S. And immediately we come face to face with this monumental conclusion. Namely, that worship is not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. And that is one of the major misunderstandings of many in our world today. They think that as long as they are moved in some compelling emotional way, they've engaged in worship, and that is not true. Worship consists of specified acts developed beneath the delegation of God's authority and directed to Him. Note some of these comments specifically. These acts are specific. Namely, they are enumerated for us in the Word of God. And doesn't it, in fact, reach this conclusion almost immediately? These two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, I would invite you to consider. One of the prevalent misunderstandings, it seems, touching the subject of worship is that a person should be in worship basically every moment of every day. Now may we quickly say, surely as Christians we should live in a glorified state every moment desiring to set forth the right example before others. In fact, the body of the Lord Jesus should be manifest in our lives every time that you and I appreciate that, that occurrence. But let's ask this. Does that mean we are to be engaged in what the Bible calls worship every waking minute? Well, surely not. In Genesis chapter 22, there was a description there of Abraham. And we remember God had given him what was a very unusual and very demanding command. Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, and go to the mount I'll show thee and offer him as a burnt offering to me. And as that chapter unfolds, Abraham proceeds. He gathers up the necessary items to make the offering. He takes some servants and he and Isaac proceed on the way to Mount Moriah. In verse number 5, 
Abraham makes an interesting comment. He gives instructions to those servants that were with him, tarry here while I and the lad go yonder to worship. Abraham was not worshiping while he was walking to Moriah. He wasn't worshiping on the way. That was something he was going to do when he got there. Worship. Abraham understood well that everything that's done night and day is not classified beneath the biblical description of worship. And in the New Testament, does it a similar circumstance prevail? In Acts chapter 8, we read about an Ethiopian man, one who had traveled a thousand miles one way to do something. The Bible calls it worship. He wasn't worshiping while he was in the chariot. It was something he did when he arrived at the location in Jerusalem and something from which he was returning to the land of Ethiopia. Again, worship is not that which was done all the time. It consists of specified acts which are done in reverence to God. That first definition then has illuminated greatly the biblical prescription of worship, hasn't it? It directly leads us to the next one. What about the object of worship? Did you notice it with me? Acts of reverence directed to God. Worship is not directed to you and me. You and I benefit from it without doubt. We are told we encourage each other, we edify one another. Our songs are especially said to be such that we teach and admonish each other. Colossians 3.16 But the first and foremost of our appreciations is it's directed to God. Isn't that what David said? Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord. Bring an offering. That statement of 1 Chronicles 16.29 leads us then to develop that thought a little bit more thoroughly. How great our God is and so worthwhile and so deserving of our worship. Didn't the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 89 verse 7? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. God is worthy of your absolute obeisance and mine. Your reverence and mine. He is that great. He is described as being infinite in understanding. Psalm 147 verse 5. He is said to be the God of truth. Deuteronomy 32 4. He is described as the one who is able to do any and everything. Nothing is too great for Him. In light of that, Consider this matter. He is the one to be worshipped. I realize that the human family has often erred by worshipping stars and mountains and oceans and rocks and even people. But it ought not ever to have been. Jesus identified it like this in Matthew 14. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. That was a commandment. Jesus uttered it, and it is still so very powerful. God is to be worshipped. Men aren't great. We're not awesome. We're not worthy to be worshipped. And certainly no inanimate object like a star or a rock or a mountain. As you and I think about that attribute of worship, the Scriptures so often remind us of the utility of it. And it seems to me the very last chapter of the Bible paints a dramatic picture Imagine it with me. John, that in the apostle, had been given those things that comprise the book of Revelation. 
They were delivered to him in visions and in signs. And he was told, write down what you see. And you and I know the things he saw were overwhelming mentally. He saw beasts and bowls and dragons and he saw all kinds of considerations. And as he did so, that book closes and John was beside himself. He was overwhelmed. The text says in verses 8 and 9 of Revelation 22, he fell down ready to worship the angel that delivered these things to him. Do you remember what the angel did? The angel said, get up. Worship God. The angel, in essence, said, I am not to be worshipped. If only the human family could remember and appreciate the thought then that worship is to be directed to the God of heaven and Him alone. And this definition we've learned so far this morning harmonizes with that understanding, doesn't it? Worship God. This attribute of worship, though, leads us even beyond that. I would invite you to consider point number three. If it is the case that worship is directed to God, and it is, then we know one direct conclusion is this one. Worship is not centered on man. Worship is not to be centered on me, on you, on our preferences, our choices, that which is that which we prefer, that is wholly immaterial. Worship is directed to God. Look at how that thought develops. It appears that there is a growing tendency in the world in which you and I live to structure worship to suit man's preferences. To structure worship to suit what you and I would prefer. And yet that is distantly removed from this definition of worship, isn't it? And hence, what does that say when there are reactions to worship? Individuals come together and some perhaps are quick to say, worship is just so boring today. The songs, they just didn't strike me today. That man couldn't have preached a more dull and dry sermon than he did today. Maybe that says more about the condition of our heart than it does about that which took place in worship. It says that we weren't very engaged, and it says that we weren't particularly motivated by the thought that worship isn't directed to me. It's directed to God. Now certainly any man that leads singing or preaches and involves himself in the public presentation of leading worship, he strives to do the very best of which he's capable, and he strives to orchestrate and do his part in a way that encourages the proper worshipful attitude in the mind of others. But look at some of these statements. In the final analysis, my preferences are not a dictating matter in worship, and neither are yours. Worship is directed to God. There are those who might prefer to have a guitar and a banjo and a band because they like the sound of it. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we like that or not. There are others who might prefer a stage production up here with theatrical lights. They want skits and presentations. But it doesn't matter what I like. And it doesn't matter what you prefer. It matters what has God said He wants. Perhaps you and I can imagine it. Isn't it a great matter in nerve when someone takes the opportunity to speak on behalf of another? I can perhaps give you an example. I'm a teacher, 
we all appreciate, because we were there at one point, we knew what it was like to be a student. When the teacher has set the boundaries or the guidelines for a given assignment, then that is the thing that shall be graded, and it'll be graded as the teacher has given instruction. Do you suppose a student has the right to say, well, I didn't want to do it that way, so I chose to do something else, and expect the teacher to be happy with it? If a math teacher said you're to do every other odd problem at the end of chapter 2, section 3, and turn that in two days from now, and the student says, I didn't really want to do that, so I did all the even ones in section 1 of that chapter. Do you suppose the teacher would be happy? Do you suppose the teacher would in fact be pleased and grade that with perfect appreciation? I think we all know exactly what the reaction would be. The teacher, as the authority figure in that classroom, had every right to dictate relative to the assignment, and the student was supposed to do that which was the commandment given. God has the one to be worshipped. Isn't it a great matter and nerve on the part of man to say, well, I know what you've said, but I don't care, and I'll do it some other way that I want to do it. No wonder God doesn't find any pleasure in such worship as that. No wonder then you'll notice verses like John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. And that was prefaced by that statement that God seeketh such to worship Him. God wants individuals of a desirous, obedient heart who truly want to do worship the way He wants it done. Because that kind of worship is pleasing to Him. In any wonder then that thought leads us directly to the next one. Look at number four. It is the case, isn't it, that it seems as if in the mind of some, because worship is orchestrated according to human preference, that it basically has degenerated to a time of entertainment. I mentioned to you other you know, just a moment ago about there are places you can go in which the stage has theatrical lighting. It is a full-scale production for worship to take place for the presentation of entertaining matters for the audience. But you and I learned a moment ago, the audience is not the ones who are worshipped. It's God that's worshipped. Is it any wonder then that some of these thoughts come before us? We do live in a society that is instantly entertainment crazed. And we know that's true. We have our electronic devices we can carry in our hand. We have immediate access, it seems, to information. And we want that to be such that it's immediately gratifying. And many want their worship the same way. They want to be emotionally stimulated every moment they're in the building. We should immediately say, if our heart is in it and we're worshiping God, it will be a stimulating factor to us, but it's not externally stimulating. We're not stimulated by a band. We're not stimulated by, again, theatrical productions. We're not stimulated by these other sensory matters. Our stimulation is to come from an internal and interior direction to want to please God. That kind of worship is so rich. It's so meaningful. It is so properly directed. Look at some of these comments. I quote, This is from a so-called religious consultant. There are individuals like that. 
they occupy a position, a recognized standard in the religious world today in which they can give advice as to how worship is to be structured. A religious worship consultant. Liturgy should be imaginative and never boring. That word liturgy is just a fancy description for worship services. This religious consultant said, make sure above all else that you structure your worship in such a way that it's imaginative, it evokes creativity, and it's never, ever boring. That's the advice he gave some persons interested in learning how to structure their worship. Unbelievable, isn't it? Look at the next comment. We must use vivid imagery. Notice the creativity that this person suggests to be employed. You dream up ways to make your worship enlivening, never boring, always exciting to the emotional side of the human frame. As you think about all those things, look at the very bottom. Doesn't the Bible describe that if worship or in fact if our service in general is directed in a way like that, it's a rather disgraceful thing. Paul said in Galatians 1 verse 10, If I would be the servant of man, I am not the servant of Christ. If we bend our worship just to look good to the community or just to in fact be directed in a way like that, he says we're not serving God. That kind of thing leads us to that other verse in James 4 verse 4. That very thunderous passage in which James, that inspired writer, said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It is a shame then to take worship as the Bible describes it and alter it and change it such that it suits your pleasures and mine and is simply a matter of entertaining consideration. But perhaps a fifth point directly comes before us. It has to do with the reaction of human beings in worship, namely you and me. If it is acts of reverence directed to God, then what does that say about feeling good? There seems to be a monumental understanding in the mind of many that the sole idea about worship is, I go there and I should leave feeling good. It should help me feel better about myself. It should be basically a half-hour self-help course every, every week. Is that the way worship is described in the Bible? I would ask you to think about some of these comments. If worship is directed that way, that means there are certain things that are obviously off limits. No songs ought to be sung that would prompt a person to feel guilty. No Bible text ought to ever be read that prompts a person to think twice about the way in which he or she is living. It shouldn't prompt them to, in fact, feel distanced from God. And immediately, you notice a lot of subjects would be off limits to the preacher. He might be instructed, don't ever preach on things like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That might offend somebody. Don't you ever preach on things, in fact, about the language of life or someone may be struggling with that and you don't want to offend them. That list could be considerably lengthened. And there are congregations in which the preacher has been given that kind of instruction. He's been told, make sure to not preach on something that might offend somebody. For we want to make sure they feel good so they'll come back. But let me ask you to consider some of the following. 
if ultimately there is a day of judgment and we, of course, desire ourselves and others to stand justified and right on that occasion, and we know the Word of the Lord is the means whereby they can come to know truth and respond to it, it certainly is safe to say that if they never hear those precious things that God has delivered that would encourage their repentance, if they never hear that, we're doing them a disservice. Is it any wonder that Paul said, I have shunned not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27. Today, you and I then realize worship shouldn't be directed in such a way. Its sole duty is just to make people feel good. Now, indeed, if we obey the Lord and worship Him as we ought and we use His Word as a proper mirror to our life, we can leave feeling good. There is no question about that. Paul was a man filled with joy for reasons of that very same. But if you and I shirk our responsibility in regard to directing worship and we just orchestrate it to be a feel-good party, that isn't worship. It has well been said, and we've used the statement before, maybe this is the appropriate time to reconsider it, you can't cleanse sinners in the pew with soft soap from the pulpit. We each need a heavy dose of the Word of God. And if it steps on our toes, we should be thankful for the man that brought it to us that way. Thankful that God has enlightened us relative to these mistakes in our life and that we can make change while the opportunity is before us. Worship. You'll notice this matter of feeling good takes us to a number of passages. Aren't we told in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works? I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine." But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things. Make full proof of thy ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. That reads us through verse number 5 of 2 Timothy 4. It is to be noted that there was a highlighted significance. And wasn't it true, Paul said, preach it in season and out of season. You and I aren't in the business of deciding not to preach something because it might offend somebody. The Bible knows nothing about political correctness. It comes straightforwardly to you and to me, and if we are subject to making changes, it directly tells us, doesn't it? No wonder we come to point number six. Worship is not a matter then of social convenience. It's not simply something that takes place, oh, once a week or so, the desire of which is to have a community engagement where it's just a matter of fun. There are those, as you and I well know, who have their donuts and their coffee, and they come together and talk about last night's ball game and spend a half an hour in what ought to be a Bible study period. And they don't do that which ought to be done. And there are those who basically turn worship into something similar. That's an affront to the very nature of what worship is supposed to be. Worship is supposed to be acts of reverence directed to God. We can eat before we come. We can take care of those kind of matters at a separate location in time. 
Didn't Paul, in fact, reprimand those in Corinth for something along that line? What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-two. Thus, when you and I come together, it should be a time of direction in which it is the highlight, literally, of our spiritual week. A time to magnify and exalt God and His will. And as we do that, it's not merely a time of social matter or convenience. Look at some of these verses for a moment. In Psalm 122, verse number 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 84, verse number 10, The psalmist even responded how thankful he'd be simply to be a doorman in the house of God. We look forward then to those opportunities of coming together. There are other times in the week when we can invest ourselves in matters that might be social. We can come together with our family at other occasions and times. Worship is so unique and so powerful, isn't it? When Paul met with those brethren in Acts chapter 20 at Troas, he met with them, and you remember as we studied last Lord's Day, he did preach until midnight. But as they took the Lord's Supper together, what a magnificent time it surely must have been. All of that brings us to point number seven. The object then as to how worship, and you and I noted earlier there were these worship consultants. Their instructions are so often given in a way to organize worship to attract large crowds. Let me again be quick to say we would very much enjoy individuals who had a desire to learn the Word of God and who wanted to know what true worship was. We'd like for it to be such that this building would be packed. But notice... We don't organize worship and structure it to that end. We, our desire is to organize worship as the Bible would have it and that they would find by the description of the Word of God that's how it should be and they'd be excited about it. Today we know again that there appear to be those who organize it and according to their writings this is clearly the case. They organize it to be that which plays upon entertainment ideas so that large numbers of people will come. Look at some of these thoughts with me if you would. We've already learned that's not the design of worship. Worship is acts of reverence directed to God. There is a rather telling passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that reminds us briefly about the nature of what's before us at this moment. You may remember that Isaiah found himself in this situation. God had just commissioned him to be a preacher, a prophet, if you please, a spokesman for that day and time. And as he did so, Isaiah felt overwhelmed with the charge and challenge given to him. In that overwhelming character, a discussion took place about, what am I to preach? You may remember among those things, Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Two verses later, Isaiah asked a question, so what about the message? God said, don't you ever change the message, even if they won't like it. Doesn't that speak volumes about the thought before us today? So are we to change the message or leave out part of it just so we can have bigger crowds? God says no. He says the truth is to be preached always under every circumstance and we trust that their heart will in fact bend in urgency to the nature of it. But if they won't, if they won't, 
Don't ever, ever change the message to suit human need, to suit human preference, I should say. Notice what Jesus did in John chapter 2. You remember the scene well. Here, people were gathered together at the temple for the purpose, supposedly, of worshiping God. Jesus reprimanded them strongly. In fact, He made a whip, drove out those animals, and turned over the money changers' tables. Question. Lots of people were there, and that was a matter to assist them. Jesus turned all that upside down. God's house, He said, is not to be made a den of thieves. You don't turn worship into what lots of people like just so that they'll come. Truth is more special, more needful, more important than that, and so too is worship. What you and I do during these times of worship is so vitally significant. It really is that, that important. It may well be you could consider that text in Matthew 23. There the Lord spoke to some Pharisees. Remember, those were the so-called religious people of the day. They went about doing the things that they thought God demanded of them, and that including periods, of course, of assembly. Jesus pronounced one after another woes upon them. At one point, He even compared them to whited sepulchers. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Now let me ask you, was that a sermon? Was that a message that they liked hearing? Was that a message that in fact was designed to draw big crowds? We know it wasn't. No wonder in John chapter 6 and verse 66 and following it says, Many walked with Him no more. The message was too hard and they didn't find it comfortable. May we be thankful for the directness of God's Word and recognize that in these periods of worship, we wish to be presented with that which is the truth. Finally, point number eight. Point number eight. That word truth, it was a perfect manner to lead us into this last observation. Worship is to be done in truth. We began the lesson by noting worship is acts of reverence directed to God. So what are those acts? Of what do they consist? Are you and I left to decide that? The answer is no. God has told us what acts He wants, what acts He desires, what acts He demands. Today, I thought that we would develop this in a two-part lesson and hence next Sunday morning. Please make sure to be back with us as we continue it. We will look at what those acts are, how they're to be done, the details by which they're to be presented. And as we look at them, I hope we'll be reminded based on the foundation of this lesson that those acts are something, again, that are the acts of reverence directed to God. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've learned this morning in part what worship in spirit involves. An enthusiastic recognition of the fact that God is great and we are not. And this is a time in which we pour out the heartfelt feelings of ourselves in thanksgiving in acts of reverence to Him. Those acts, again, we'll look at next Sunday. But right now, I might ask each of us to seriously consider... Let us never allow the world by its own presentation to structure in our mind what worship is supposed to be. God's book defines it. It is His book that sets it forth and His book that presents it. Today, if you're not able to worship Him in spirit and in truth, it's not His fault. 
He has told us what worship is. He's told us what those acts are. And I might say this morning, if you're not a faithful child of God, you cannot express your heartfelt thanks, for to this point you haven't been thankful. The Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, died on the cross. And to this point, you've neglected that. You have overlooked it. You've ignored it. You have not turned your life over to Him. Today, if that would be the desire of your heart, and I hope if you're of the age of accountability that it would be, why do you delay and why do you wait? You could be a saved person as you leave this building today. That plan of salvation reads, you must believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God, repent of your sins and confess His name as the Master, and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have taken care of that need at some point in life, but this very moment you have become unfaithful in a public way, Others know about mistakes. They know about choices you've made in life. But to this point, you have not had a mentality to make it right. Why not do that today? Come before us. Make a confession of those things. We'll be honored to pray to God on your behalf. If today we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience, think of what a blessing it is to be able to worship in the way we have described in truth and in spirit. And if you'd like to be able to do that, come today and make it right with the Lord. And do so while together we stand and while we sing.